And guys will be glad to give you one. There we go. Podium to fall apart. You take your Bibles and turn to Malachi. That's an easy one to find. Let's go to Matthew and back up. Back up one, you got it. Go to Genesis and back up one, what do you have? Quick. Thank you. Good man. Table of Contents, my favorite book. If you go to Revelation and go to the next one, what do you got? Ah. Bibliography, another great book. Or Concordance, that's a great one, the Book of Concordance. My favorite book in the Bible, however, is the Book of Opinions. That's one we all tend to like. All right, everybody found Malachi? No? Yes? All right. If you'll notice the top of your handout, we began a series last week. We're going to be in it for the next few years, weeks, hopefully, about God's messenger. That's what Malachi means. That's what his name means, God's messenger, the messenger of Yahweh, messenger of Jehovah, messenger of the one true God, Malachi. And it is, it's an interesting book for a lot of reasons. You'll notice the top of your handout is quote by Jesus Christ. He says, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And he's talking about John the Baptist. And it is a quote from the book of Malachi. We'll get to it in the next couple of weeks. But basically, John the Baptist is the first voice you hear from God after Malachi. There's a 400-year period of time called the silent years when you don't hear from God. And the next voice that you hear is John the Baptist coming on the scene saying, as he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you were a Jew, you knew immediately he was referring to Passover and the Lamb of God and the great promise. And John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan River saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus comes to be baptized and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the great fulfillment of everything they had been looking for. For century after century and generation after generation, John the Baptist says he's here, the Lamb, the Messiah. So Jesus, in referring to John the Baptist, said he's the one that Malachi was talking about when he said, my messenger is coming. And we're going to get into all of that and exactly what that means. So last week we dealt, on your handout, we dealt with number one about God's love. If you'll notice, the title is, Do You Care? In Malachi chapter 1, it's a series, it's God's messenger has a message for God's people. And he's saying to the children of Israel, and obviously the word of God we apply to our lives as God's children, the church today, and his message to the children of Israel was, do you care? We dealt last week with, about the fact that God Love them. I want you to notice in chapter 1, verse 2. We're not going to go back over those five verses, but I'm just going to hit a highlight. Chapter 1, verse 2 begins with the phrase we dealt with last week, but I want to start, jump from there today. I have loved you. And in Hebrew, what that says is, I have loved you in the past, and I continue to love you now, even though you don't care. So the first thing we dealt with last week is God was saying to them, do you care? Do you understand what it means that I have loved you? It's the message of this book, and in reality, it is the message of the entire Bible. God loves us. You notice the three points from last week. God loves us and has extended his love to us, shown his love to us. We're going to look at 1 John in just a moment and see that. God has loved us and given us something that's unmerited, grace. We did not deserve he loved us anyway. We do not deserve he loves us anyway. He gives to us and extends to us the opportunity to have eternal life through the person of Jesus Christ. It's unchanging. He has loved. He continues to love despite our rebellion, despite the fact that we want nothing to do with him as Israel shows here. And we'll see in Malachi, God loved them anyway. 
and that it's universal. He loved all of them. He loves all of us. Despite our rebellion. And the one thing I began to encourage you with last week, and as we walk through this little book of Malachi, here's what I want you to take away from it. God says some very tough things to the children of Israel in the book of Malachi. But the thing he wants them to understand, the overarching principle, the thing he would say to us is, I am your father. Now, sometimes as a father or as a mother, for a moment, put on your parent hat. Sometimes as a parent, do you say tough things to your children? I think the answer might be yes. Like, you may not know how to interpret that, but you say it. Sometimes you say very tough things. Sometimes you have to discipline. Sometimes you have to punish. Sometimes you have to withhold things they really want. And sometimes you really have to discipline them in a harsh way to get their attention. But then you also say very tender, don't you? And a lot of times those tender things come after you've had to say tough things. When you have to go back, show hands, won't confess any sins. We'll get to that later. I'll confess mine. Particularly with my son, who's my, our youngest child. I was... Interesting with my girls, and I won't get into that because one of them is here, but with my son, I was much tougher on him physically as far as spanking things because that's the only way I could get his attention was, was to make sure he understood it hurt to disobey dad. But I remember one particular time I had just whipped him severely or something. I, I don't even remember what it was now. It happened so often. But I found out he did not do what I, told, I had accused him of doing. As a parent, particularly fathers, how many of you have ever been there? Did you have to go eat crow? It's hard, isn't it? It's one of, and, I, and I've shared this story with you before, but it's so apropos. I love the old Andy Griffith TV series. I think it's the best thing that's ever been on television. Barney Fife, the greatest character that's ever lived. But what moral lessons taught over and over throughout that show, and one of my favorites is Andy finds out that he's, been, he's punishing Opie because Opie didn't give enough money to charity, and Opie was saving the money to buy a little girl who didn't have a coat. We'll buy her a coat. If you haven't seen that episode, you need to go see it and prepare to cry. So... At the end of it, Andy finds out Opie's really been wanting to do a good thing, and Andy's been mad, and Andy's embarrassed because his son's not giving like all the other kids, and he's embarrassing Dad, and he, so he punishes him. At the end of it, he finds out he's wrong, and of course, he apologizes to Opie. He'll sit at the table afterwards, and Opie says, Paul, what are we having for dinner? He said, well, you and Barney and Aunt B are having roast, and I'm having crow. But what an opportunity when you go back, and I had to do that with my son, go back to him and say, Andy, I was wrong, and I asked forgiveness. Now, the beauty of our Heavenly Father is he never does what? He don't dine on crow because he never makes a mistake. So when he disciplines me or when he has to say something tough to me, I deserve it. I need it. And what he's hoping for is I'll understand that, that he is my Father. That is the message of not only Scripture, but particularly as we focus on this little prophecy of Malachi, the burden from the oracle Malachi, God saying to his people, I love you. Why don't you care about me? And so the encouragement I want to give to you is when he says that and as we walk through this, he wants them to understand. There's a reason I'm telling you these harsh things because I've got something much better for you. When you discipline your children, particularly when they're small and they don't understand it, are you doing it to be mean? You're doing it. Why? Because you know it's better for them not to put their hand on the stove. It's better for them not to run out in traffic. So sometimes you have to stop them and you have to spank them or pop that hand or whatever you got to do. They don't like it. Or you withhold a toy they really like. Or you don't let them go on a particular date they really wanted to go on. And because by the time they're about 15 or 16, you're a complete idiot anyway. Maybe that's changed to 12 or 13 now. I don't know. But boy, when that adolescent starts kicking in, you're a complete fool. But God never stopped you from being their parent, did he? 
But I want you to come back to keep, keep coming back to God loves you. God loves us and wants to use us in some incredible ways, has something beautiful he wants to do in our lives as individual believers and corporately as the body of Christ, and particularly for this particular local congregation, Christ Church Arlington. God has things he wants us to do. But he may have to discipline, he may have to prune, and he may have to be involved in my life to change some things. So we dealt with last week God's love. I want us to look for just a moment briefly at 1 John chapter 3. We alluded to this a little bit last week, but I want to read it and focus on 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. Just You don't have to turn there, just uh, listen. We talked about the Apostle John wrote these words last week, him being the disciple whom Jesus loved, what he called himself, and he meant by that, I'm just blown away that he loves me. All right, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. In other words, what John is saying, I just, I can't believe that I get to be a child of God, that he loved me that much, that I am his child. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. We're different. Christians are to be different. We have to be there. We have to be in the world. We're different than them. We have a message that will change their lives. And he says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning. I want you to notice that phrase, that we should love one another. You heard from the beginning. You've been taught this. What are the, when, when we start with children right across the hall here or in your home, when they're little and you're trying to, as a parent, you want to disciple your children and bring them to a point where they know Christ and they want to be a child of God. And they, just like this beautiful scene today with Patrick getting baptized, what a great thing. What a, what a special moment in his life. And as he goes forward and as he grows, one day as a father has his own children and wants to disciple them, and wants to tell them about this Jesus that changed my life when I was seven years old and has brought me to this point. What's the very first thing you try to teach your children about God? Anybody? God loves you. God loves you. If you do that again, God's going to get you. No. God loves you. What's the first, one of the first verses we all memorize? Every one of you has got memorized, written by the same guy. For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. He didn't have to do that, but he did. He loved us. He sent Christ to die in our place because he did love us. We could not redeem ourselves. We were in rebellion against him. He loved us. We want children from the beginning. We start by communicating that. God loves you. Our response should be to love him in turn. That's what he wants. Verse 16, in that same chapter, John writes, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And in chapter 4 of that same book, he writes these words, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I want you to notice particularly the next phrase. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son, unique one, into the world that we might live through him. Jesus, the unique human being that's ever lived because he's also God, the unique one, God himself, third person of the Trinity. This is how God manifested his love. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the one we've heard about from the time of Moses. Exodus, when he came out, the Passover Lamb. We've heard about it. We celebrate it. Here he is. Behold, the Lamb of God, the way we know love historically is that it was manifested. A person, Jesus bar Joseph, son of Joseph and Mary, died 
in our place. He was Christ. He was Messiah, and he died in our place. It's manifested to us. Send him into the world that we might live through him. The only way I can have life and understand life and know life and have eternal life is through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He loved me enough to make that possible. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word simply means satisfaction. He paid my debt. Randy owed a debt, could not pay. Jesus paid for me. God said, that's good enough. Jesus said, it is finished. Stamp, paid in full. Love has been perfected among us in, the, in this. We may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I love this phraseology. And before we jump into the next point, I really want you to understand, because this is the encouragement of this book. As tough as Malachi is, here's what God is doing. He's saying, I have, will, do, love you. Love you. Sacrifice conditionally. I love you. Don't love me. You don't reciprocate. I love you. And he said, why? He said, I want you to get it. I want you to understand. When you grip much, I love you. I love the beauty of this. We have boldness in the day of judgment. No fear. Why do, we, why do I know? The Bible says it's pointing to a man wants to die after that judgment. Why do I know when I stand before God on judgment day that I have nothing to because God loved me so much? That's why. not because I'm looking. Thank you. Not, not because I do a lot of good things. Not because I give money. Not because I've been a father and a grandfather and a, and a decent guy and never hurt anybody that, okay, nothing serious, but... I've been a pretty good person. I can always find people to compare myself to, like, like uh, well, I won't pick any names, Peter Simons, for example, that I'm much better than. I can do that. We can all do that. But the reason I can stand before God one day and know that I'm going to get to go to heaven and be in paradise and be bold at the day of judgment is because Jesus saved me. God said, don't forget how much I loved you. Now let's talk about where you are. That's what he wants them to understand. Look at chapter 4 for a moment. He said, I, I mean, a ver, a chapter 1, verse 4. I've loved you, he says to the children of Israel, and your response has been to dishonor my name, defile my sacrifice, degrade me before these. You're surrounded by pagans. If you don't think this is relative to where you are today, then you don't understand America. Every day when you go out, all the different places you go, there are people who mock Jesus Christ. Maybe not openly, simply by who they are, what they live, what they stand for. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm the only way. God says, I've loved you, and your response has been to defile, grade my name in front of all the non-believers. You see, the church has a unique in history. The church has a unique position at the moment in time. 2013, September 29th, as you are God chosen to represent the world. Why don't you, don't you do that? Be everything I want to be. The truth is, you'll be better off, and the world will get a genuine realization who I am. That's, by the way, that's what glorify God. Let them see who God really is. Not what they think, not what they've heard, not what they've seen with false preachers or other people who call themselves Christians, but in your life, in my life, someone says, you might be the only Bible a person reads. They need to see Christ in you. That's your hope. That's what he wants you to glorify him. But look at verse, chapter one, verse four. He said, I've given you unconditional love. I've given you undeserved favor. Please don't forget who I am. I want you to notice a phrase that's used. Uh, chapter one, verse four. The end, right in the middle of it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, chapter 4, verse 6, right in the middle of it, says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, at the end of it, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to get to all these verses. Verse 9, end of it, says the Lord of hosts, verse 10, verse 11, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, verse 13. You also say what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, verse 14. 
Take a vow of sacrifices. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. You see a theme there? He's the Lord of what? See, he's reminding them right here in this chapter, this phrase, Lord of hosts, is used 24 times in the book of Malachi. It is used 260 times in the Old Testament. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the Lord of hosts. I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. But do not ever forget, I am the Lord of hosts. Here's what it means in Hebrew. He means at my disposal at any time are untold myriad infinitesimal into infinity numbers of angels and powers to do what I tell them to do simply because I tell them to do it. You know why angels exist according to the Bible? They exist for one reason. They are God's messengers on our behalf. He uses them for a lot of things. And there are myriad numbers of angels that simply wait the beck and call of the Lord of hosts to do what he will do. The Hebrew metaphor for Lord of hosts means I am the invincible one. There is no power. For example, you don't have God on your right shoulder. If you grew up with Looney Tunes, you'll understand this. You don't have God on your right shoulder and a little devil on your left shoulder with... And they're equal forces fighting against each other. Now, you, is Satan involved with demons trying to tempt? Of course he is. He is not equal. First John 4, 4, same author says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is within the world. Satan is a created being, a fallen being, a defeated being. God, your, fa your father is the invincible one. He reminds them over and over 24 times in these four little chapters, God says to his people, I am the Lord of hosts. What would he be saying to us today? Because the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrew. So what would he be saying to us today? Randy, Christ Church, I am the Lord of what? Host. I am the invincible one. I am. What did he tell Moses his name was before Moses, Pharaoh, the greatest human being on the planet at the time, considered a God himself. And as Moses was to go to him, a Hebrew slave, and say, let my people go, God said, just remind the people, my name is what? I am. And by extension, you ain't. Pharaoh ain't, God talk like you probably don't know. Pharaoh ain't, you ain't, ain't nobody else ain't. I am. I love the way the Bible interprets itself. That's the best way to study scripture. John wrote his gospel based on great statements by Jesus. And they all began, seven of them, seven miracles. And they all began with state, I am. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the bread. All these metaphors they understood. What was Jesus saying to those Jews that were listening to him? You think you know who God is? Your father, he said in chapter 8, Jews, your father Abraham looked forward to my day. Why? Because I am. Who was it? Talk to Abraham. It was me. I am. I am the Lord of hosts. Do not ever forget that. I am the Lord of hosts. All right, go to your handout to number two. I hope, we, I hope we've established the context well enough. Because here's the thing you're going to see when you go through here. God is passionately saying to his people, I love you, I lo and, I'm, and I'm, I'm intentionally emphasizing this over and over so you get the encouragement of the book. I love you, I love you, I love you. Please come back because before we're through with Malachi, you're going to hear God state these words in Malachi. God hates divorce. Now, we don't want to take it out of context. We'll talk about divorce when we get there. But what he said to them in the context of the book is I hate what spiritually you're doing. It's like divorce. You're running to something else and breaking a vow. We're he gets, one of the reasons this is such a powerful book, next week or the following week, we're going to get into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he absolutely rings out priests, the leaders of people, for not being true. Boy, when I read it and I study it, I think about pastors like myself and others stand behind and say, thus saith the Lord, and realize a better saying God's not what you want. He takes it, spends a lot of time talking directly to priests, little book. It's such a, what it says to me as a leader is, you're important, but those people are 
They're real important to me. You better care of them. You better pass them. You better teach. And then you better model that. No game. Be real. Be what I called you. We'll get into that. We'll talk about chapter two. Look at verse six, chapter one. Second thing he asks them. Do you care about my honor? Is it important to you to honor me? Verses one through five, he said, I've shown you unconditional love and you've dishonored me. So the next, I told you last week, this book is written on a question and answer format. They question God. And he says, here's what I'm talking about. So the question, the second question we're going to look at today, we looked at that one last week. We're going to look at this one today. How, the question here is, Lord, how have we dishonored you? How have we dishonored you? They were so, they didn't even see it. Look, look at verse six, chapter one. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name. He mentions them here and it begins here. We'll really get into it in the next chapter. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? The leaders, the examples, the teachers have despised, dishonored the name of God. And then they say to God, well, how have we done that? Now look at verse 7. You've offered defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? In other words, you're going to see God's answer to them. They're saying, Lord, in what way have we dishonored or defiled you? And God says, really? You don't see it? Well, here, let me give you a few examples. Number one, you offered me defiled food. And then you say, Lord, how have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. I can't wait till we get to this part. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? You've offered defiled food, blind food, lame food, sick food. You drop down to verse 13. We'll get to that. You've offered me stolen food. You've offered me stuff that I will have told you specifically. I will not accept. And yet that's what you bring me. God wants two things. And then we're going to look at some verses in Leviticus in just a moment, the Old Testament. He wants genuine reverence, and he wants genuine offerings. Now, he's specifically dealing with Israel here, and we're going to look at Leviticus 22 in just a moment. But here's what I want you to notice, because he's saying to them, I've given you a specific way I ask you to approach me, but it all begins with the heart. Give me the reverence I deserve. I am the Lord of what? I am the invincible one. I am your heavenly father. And I told you to approach me this way, offer me this kind of animal, and you bring me blind animals and lame animals and sick, diseased animals and animals that you've stolen from somebody else. Animals that I have specifically said to you, I will not accept. It's not about the specific animals as much as it is about what? Reverence. If you loved me, if you wanted to honor me, you would do it my way, not your way. I've given you a specific way to do it, and you said, nah, we'll do it our own way. We'll do it our own way. The standard for offerings in the Old Testament that God gave to the children of Israel was threefold. Number one, you bring me the best, the best, not blemished, non-blemished, without defect. That's what you bring to me. Secondly, you bring me the first. It is to be a priority that you bring to me the first fruits of your harvest, not the leftovers. By the way, before this book is over, we're going to get into giving because it also deals with that. First fruits. And then third, you bring me something that's costly. In other words, it's kind of a joke. Maybe not at your house, but sometimes it is at ours when we collect food at Thanksgiving and Christmas for the food baskets. Don't raise your hand if you've ever done this because I know you have. Have you ever opened your cabinet and said, listen, we're not going to eat that. We're not going to eat that. I'm tired of that. I wish Mary quit buying that. I think I'll give this to the church and then I'll feel better about myself. Ever done that? Probably. Now, we are blessed at Christ Church, both this campus and our Bartlett campus. Very giving, loving. When we ask, you give. But sometimes we give God something. 
All right, Leviticus 22. Look specifically, listen, I want you to notice exactly what God says. You don't have to turn there. Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves. Aaron, his sons would be the priests the high priest, and then the Levites would be the other. From the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. You shall offer of your own free will. Notice, this is what I want from you. Offerings of your own free will. Don't give it to me because somebody talked you into it. Don't give it to me because you're guilty. Don't give it to me because you want to do it. Give it to me because you want to. I am the Lord of hosts. I don't need this. I want you to give it because you want to. Now notice, you own free will, a male without blemish, by the way, picturing Jesus Christ, from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. You see that? Now, in Malachi, he says, you're offering me these defective animals, these lame animals, these blemished animals, and then you look at me and say, is that a problem? When God had specifically said what? I will not accept that. I want the first. I want the best. I don't want a defective animal. I don't want a blind animal. I don't want a lame animal. Wasn't the animal, it was the fact that they were giving something that was great benefit. It was a sacrificial, heartfelt gift. Verse 5 in that chapter says, As soon as the commandment was circulated about the giving, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and all of the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. They brought it in of their own free will, abundantly and the best, because that's what God wanted. Then the king said, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will offer, this is from 2 Samuel, I will offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that which costs me nothing I will not give. So David bought the threshing floor and the auction, oxen for 50 shekels of silver. In other words, another passage to illustrate. David said, I don't want to give it to God unless it costs me sacrifice giving. All right, look at Malachi again. Now look at verse 8. God illustrates the point further. He said, you're asking, how do you dishonor my name? And I'm saying, by what you give to me. Did you bring me these defective, lame, sick, blind, anim- stolen animals? He said, I'll tell you what you do. I love this. Look at verse 8. Offer the last part of verse 8. Offer these same animals to your governor. See the exclamation point at the end of that sentence? Offer these animals to your governor. Here's what he's saying. Take these same lame, defective, sick, blind, stolen animals and pay your, try to pay your taxes with them. That's what he's saying. What's the governor going to do? He's going to laugh because he ain't taking that stuff. You're not giving that to the governor. You know why you won't give it to the governor? Because he won't take it. But you'll give it to God. You'll give it to God, but you're not going to pay your taxes with it. Like if you had Confederate money laying around the house. You're going to pay your taxes with that? You might try. Is it going to do you any good? No, they're going to laugh at you and going to come get you. But give it to God. It doesn't matter what I do to him, but you'll give it to me. Look back at verse 7. The end of verse 7. The table... By your actions, here's what you're saying. Verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar. But you say, what way have we defiled you? You, We've talked about that. Look at the last statement. God says, here's how you have defiled my name. By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Contemptible. It's not important to you. Just something you do. It's the motion that you go through. There's a story in John chapter 12, and we're not going to turn there. We don't have time. There's a story in John chapter 12, and you probably know it. it. There's a lady named Mary there, and she takes this pound of very costly ointment, and she begins to anoint the feet of Jesus with it. And Judas, being the deep spiritual person that he was, says what? Remember the story? What does Judas say? What are you doing? Lord, why are you letting her do that? We could sell that. Buy food for the poor. Ever hear anybody say that in church? 
Here's what the Bible says. You read on that passage that Judas didn't care about the poor. He simply, he would treasure and he wanted money. The Bible says study footnotes, margin notes. The stuff they put on his feet was worth about $10,000 today. A lot of money in it. It's what Jesus said, important. Is there anything more important in my life than Jesus Christ? There's an old saying, when a person's wallet gets baptized, you know they're born again. Because it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for me. I've been a Christian 43 years. I've been doing this 30 years, and it's hard for me. If I didn't have the wife that I had, sometimes I'd really struggle with giving God everything that I should financially. Where did it all come from anyway? From him. He is the Lord of what? Host. He is God. We're going to stop there today. I want to share a story with you, and then we're going to be finished. Chuck Swindoll once said, Chuck Swindoll is a tremendous preacher, been around for a long time, still uh, preaching. Uh, I think he's 112. Man, he was old when I started listening to him back in the 70s. And Chuck Swindoll's a tremendous, written so many great books, so many great books. He said this, quote, some of us would love to buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. Not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb. I want $3 worth of God, please. Years ago, there was a, a bishop in Paris. It's a true story. And uh, there were these three young men, and they decided one night they would just go out in Paris and do everything you could do, and they were going to party time. They went out and did everything you could think of that three young men might do in the city of Paris that was wrong. They did it that night. And early the next morning, as they rap- been wrapping up their night of sin, one of them said, you know what would really top the day off? Let's go down to the- and go in and listen to the pastor there. So they go down to the church, and one of them is spokesman. He goes in, the other two wait outside, and he starts in a loud voice, starts specifically telling the pastor everything we did wrong. It's not person uh, attacked, slept with, everything, drank, everything, everything we did. You know, to, to mock church, mock the pastor. And toward the end of it, the pastor interrupted. Him. Okay, I, I see what you can hear the other guy snickering outside. He said, tell you what, outside their giant cross. You go kneel at that cross outside and look up. And Jesus, I know you died, but I don't really give. So the young man said, oh, I'll do that. And he went outside and he kneels the cross. He said, Jesus, I know you died for my sins. He said, that's what's all about. And despite all that you do, what would Jesus say? I, I died for you. I love you. I love you. He saved me. When I didn't care about him at all, he saved me. He saved you. Are there other people out there he could save? And there are. They will be. What God wants us to understand in the whole picture of Malachi, and really the whole picture of the Bible, God loves us, has shown us that love, and manifested that love. Please, don't turn your back. Don't dishonor. Number one, do you love me? Number two, will you honor me? And then go out and honor me. See more about that. Would you bow your head? Just, just for a moment. Here's what I'd like you to do. So everybody bow your head. Right there in your chair. Nobody else's chair. Nobody else is in the room. In your chair, right where you sit, that's your little altar. Here's what God's asking. What are you bringing them? I want you to reverence. I'm the Lord of hope. I am your father. Reverence. Bring me your life. If you're born again, be honest. God, Lord, I have all of them. I serve you. I want to honor you. I love you. If you haven't been doing that, tell him. But if you're not a Christian, maybe this is a moment where you say, Jesus, thank you dying. Please forgive me. Save me. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. And as we do that, you just continue to pray and sing. If you'd like for me to pray with you, please stand.